Okay, guys, we're going to do something really fun right now because guess what? Every Sunday this year, for sure, and probably beyond, we're going to hear Life Change Story. Put your hands together for Julie Wyatt. Come on up here, Julie. Come on. All right, Julie. My wife loves you. I love your wife. And we do, too. We all love you here. Boy, God got a hold of you. Let's go back to when he got a hold of your heart. Tell us just what happened in that moment. Um, I was a young girl at a revival at my country church, and um, he just drew me. I can't explain it. What it, was that like? It was a, it was, it's, it's supernatural, it was I know. It was supernatural, and it was like I could not keep my tush in the seat. <laughs> really? Yeah. Like, you know, my cousin was sitting right next to me, and I'm like, is he going to go? He's not going to go. I got to go. I got to go alone. I got to go. Yeah. Yeah. That's the real deal. Yeah, it was. How old were you? I was somewhere 11, 12. Okay. I'm not sure. You grow up, the years go on, and we know that there are so many challenges in life that God uses those to take what he birthed in us to grow us strong. I think one of the great misnomers that we've communicated to the world is that, and I don't know where this message got populated, but it's like you come to Jesus and everything's going to be all right. It isn't always that way. No, it's not. Um, what were some of the biggest challenges where you saw God show up in power? There's been a lot. Pick one. <laughs> Pick one. Um, I would say the biggest one was I was in my mid-late 20s, had two little boys, and um, my marriage was kind of blowing up. And up until that point, I wanted to be that good Christian girl. <laughs> you know, I wanted to read my Bible. I tried to read my Bible, but I just, I just wasn't getting anything out of it. And um, it wasn't until I needed God, right? Like I had some people that I talked to, but they really weren't giving me very good advice. And so I started talking to God and I opened up my Bible and started reading it. And that is when God started talking to me, speaking to me through his word. And that's when it came alive. And once that happens, you don't want to stop, you yeah. know, because you want to yeah. keep reading, keep learning and keep hearing from God. You know, Julie, in the tradition of what God's bringing here into the family, you are one of those unique freedom fighters. You are authentic, you're real with battles and victories, but you've learned that the grace of God not only saves, but it trains us, his power. I know that you, like me and my bride and your hubby Shane and so many of us here are breaking free from a cultural misconception that we get saved in our strength, or excuse me, we get saved in God's strength and then we've got to go walk forward in our strength. It seems like, isn't that just kind of the way it feels sometimes? How has God, how does God strip that out of you and throw you right back to the foot of the cross? Um, continually. Hmm. Yeah. Um, I would say through trials. Yeah. For sure. It's tough, isn't it? Yeah. Because we both want those things gone. Right. And yet we grow best through them. Yeah. And you know, you like to talk about people, everybody's in recovery. Yeah, we are. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a recovering fixer. So it's real hard to let go and let God, you yeah. know? Um, so I got to step out of the way. And when, when I do that, I can see God working 
Yeah. And, um, but sometimes I get in the way, so he has to keep pushing me out of the way and let him, let let him, him work, work, right? Okay, let's just take a scenario. We got people here that have, and we all do, because we are all in recovery. Someone here that's got something that's just kicking their tail. She's a coach, guys, and God uses her as a coach in a big way. So coach us up. Somebody's battling with something, and it's become so pervasive, they don't even want to tell anyone about it again, or it's just in the shadows, and it's a secret. Go, Julie. Coach, right now. <laughs> I'm a coach in training, just so you know. <laughs> You're a coach. You know, um, stop trying. Yeah. Stop trying in your own power. Um, and I know, like, it's hard to tell people, but if you can find someone that yes. will listen. Yes. You know, if you find someone who wants to tell you how to fix it, that's probably not your person. But if you'll find someone who will actually listen to you and sit with you and pray with you and pray you through it, then I think on your knees is the way to do it. Oof. You're right on. Julie, you're a blessing here. Thank you. You really are. And we're so grateful for you. And I want us to do this. I want to extend a hand right now to Julie. And maybe you're new here today and you go, well, this is weird. Well, not when you realize that we're agreeing with God for a blessing over Julie. And I'm going to extend a hand toward you right now and just say, Father, this is what's on my heart. Julie's greatest desire, make it so. Make it so. The thing that she dreams, oh God, would you come and move in power, make it so. And what's cool is, God, as we pray, you go to work right now. And sometimes we don't see it right away, but God, you're there. You're at work. And we know that you who began this work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so we stand ready and watching in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Give Julie a hand. You're worthy. You're worthy. Well, good morning. I am so excited to look at God's word together with you. And as Pastor Carl said, in about 20 minutes, we're going to have some yummy hot dogs, brats, Polish sausages. But bear with me for 20 minutes as we look at what Jesus has to say about fasting. So in my city back home in India, I'm from a city of 8 million people called Chennai in southern India, in the month of July, we have a built-in alarm system. You don't have to keep your alarms on your phones. And in fact, when I was a teenager, we didn't have mobile phones then. So you had these clunky alarm clocks that you had to, you know, physically wake up and try to like shut to wake you up. But you didn't need that in the month of July. Right on the dot at 4.30 a.m., you were woken up by the sound of blazing speakers chanting Hindu mantras. 4.30 for an entire month. You know, you got to be up. And looking back, I would have been okay if these, if these songs were melodious, you know, um, soothing, calming. But no, these were chants, legit chants. So imagine one line, the same tune, repeated literally, and I'm not kidding, hundreds of times, 
with increasing pace and intensity. <laughs> and mind you, this was at 4.30 a.m. It was almost psychological torture. <laughs> Chances of going back to sleep are nil. And the reason why this happens in July is that this month, also called as Adi in the Tamil calendar, is highly auspicious in Hindu mythology, in Hindu astrology, particularly to perform rituals and sacrifices to Hindu goddesses. So there was a bunch of festivals, like eight of them in quick succession, and we had these temples in literally every corner of, of, the, of our streets in the neighborhood that we lived in, and these were hole-in-the-wall type, you know, small temples, and they had these speakers right outside on the streets, and you could, it just goes on and on the whole day for a whole month. And this was also a great time to kind of like, as a non-Hindu in a country where like 98% is not Christian, it's a great time to like observe people's spirituality. So you see, even in the mornings, people dressed up, um, you know, Pretty sure they had like a cold shower in their best clothes, coming straight up to these temples, right on the street, kneeling down, some even prostrating and worshiping their Hindu deities. And they do some crazy things. On special days, there was coal that was lined up on the streets, burning coal, and you had to quickly walk over it as a sacrifice to their Hindu god. And then you had... Uh, these big carts that had these huge titles and the more spiritual men they volunteered to kind of like carry these idols on their backs for miles on end this was an attempt to curry favor from their God a chance to also for the pious ones to showcase their spirituality and the really spiritual ones, they went on a pilgrimage. And this is what it entailed. You had to wear black for an entire month. You had to walk bare feet wherever you go. And you had to walk 150 miles from my city to a mountain. Climb up on top of a mountain where there's a temple where you sacrifice to your God. You are the really spiritual ones. And I had a couple of friends who did that. And uh, they made sure that they let me know how spiritual they were in doing that. There's a real temptation in wanting to flaunt one spirituality. And if we think we're exempt from that, I'm sorry, I have some bad news for you. We have our own ways of flaunting our spirituality, and that's what we're going to look at a little bit later. There's a real temptation to flaunt one spirituality, showcasing that we are in the right with God and we sometimes use spiritual disciplines, once meant to be inward-looking, once focused on God, as means to gain recognition and approval and attention of men. We're currently in a sermon series called Echo, looking at the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus' message on the mountainside is as clear and powerful today as then. And the gist of this sermon is that Jesus is painting a picture of what life looks like in his 
new kingdom. The nature of life in his kingdom and the identity and impact of his new kingdom disciples. The title of my sermon today is Secret Spirituality, a faith that gets God's attention. And would you turn with me as we look at Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. It's going to be on your screen. And here's what Jesus says. He says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This section on fasting is connected to the previous two uh, sections in chapter 6, one that we've dealt with in the last two Sundays. And they all center around the theme of piety, external and internal piety and rewards. In fact, verse 1 of this chapter sets the tone of what Jesus is trying to say. He says, this is verse 1 of chapter 6, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So Jesus almost makes this thesis statement, and then he gives three examples. Not just any examples, but three examples that were pillars that constituted Jewish piety. You had giving, and you can see that from verses 2 to 4, and then you had praying. That's from verses 6 to 15, and then what we're looking at today, fasting. And these three practices, giving to the needy, praying, and fasting, were essential spiritual disciplines, one that was advocated, one that is advocated by Scripture, and good things to do in and of themselves. But Jesus talks about a case where these that were inherently good were weaponized as a tool for gaining honor and approval and attention of men instead of, of a form of worship to God. In the specific case that we're looking at, fasting was a common practice in the life of Israel's religious history. In fact, the Old Testament commands at least one fast on the Day of Atonement where the entire children of Israel gathered together and atoned for their sins collectively as a nation. And in fact, that's even done today. It's called the Yom Kippur. The Israelites still celebrate that. And in Leviticus 16, where it talks about that, the word fast is used literally as a means to deny, to afflict oneself, to humble oneself and come before God. So the Jews were familiar with the practice of fasting and one that they did regularly. And there are so many other passages in the Old Testament that talks about fasting. And you'd be surprised to know fasting is used more times, occurs more times in the Bible than even the word, than even baptism, something that we're all familiar with. 
And some of the famous examples of fasting include like the Daniel fast. And then Nehemiah fasted and prayed while he was in exile for the city of Jerusalem. And we know uh, the kid's story of Jonah, where like in the entire city of Nineveh fasted and prayed when God pronounced his judgment to Jonah and God relented of what he was going to do to the city of Nineveh. So this was common, something that, that the Israelites did as part of their religious life. And fasting was not just abstaining from food, but an expression of the heart, a heart attitude, a posture of humility and dependence towards God, a desire to set right one's relationship with God and to express one's deep longing. You abstain from food and any other pleasure so that you long for God. However, as is common with the religious leaders of Jesus' day, they had missed the point. Here Jesus talks about hypocrites, religious leaders, who disfigure their faces, possibly being ungroomed, or even covering themselves with dust and sprinkling themselves with ashes and being in the public square, letting the whole world know that they were fasting. Commentators note that these Pharisees, the religious leaders, fasted at least twice a week on Mondays and Thursdays, presumably to commemorate the day when Moses went up on Mount Sinai to receive the word of the law of God. But ironically, those were market days. So you could imagine there was a lot of foot traffic, and this was the best time for religious leaders to flaunt their spirituality and let people know how spiritual they were. And Jesus uses that as an example of how not to fast. And he goes on to encourage his listeners to adopt a different approach. And today we're just going to look at two reasons that Jesus gives on why we should avoid flaunting our spirituality, and in this case, fasting. But before we do that, I want to I want to have a quick word on what fasting is. And, uh, you know, we don't have time to do a deep study on it, but I just wanted to, you know, kind of define fasting and then give you, point you to a few resources that might help you in your uh, uh, fasting. Fasting is the deprivation of food or other pleasures and distractions with the express purpose of drawing near to God. So it's a symbolic gesture of literally denying yourself the enjoyment of things so as to long for God and a deeper relationship with Him. In one of my go-to books on spiritual disciplines is Donald Whitney's Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And in it, this is, what he, this is how he introduces fasting. He says, fasting is the most misunderstood discipline because of the famine of contemporary awareness on it. Even though there's a renewal of interest in fasting today, how many people do you know who practice fasting? How many sermons have you heard on this subject? In most Christian circles, you will rarely hear fasting mentioned, and a few will have read anything about it. And yet it's mentioned in Scripture more times than even something as important as baptism. Christians in a gluttonous, denial-less, self-indulgent society may struggle to accept 
and begin the practice of fasting. Few disciplines go radically against the flesh and the mainstream of culture as this one. Nevertheless, we dare not overlook its biblical significance. Of course, for, for some people, for medical reasons, cannot fast. Steve, still, even those unable to fast from food can enjoy many applications of this discipline. No Christian should ignore fasting's benefits in the disciplined pursuit of a Christ-like life. If you want to learn more, I want to point you to two resources, and you can find them in our church website if you go to 180chicago.church, and you click on the blogs. It's called Fasting God's Way, and there's two resources. One is a sermon that Pastor Carl preached uh, a year and a half ago, and it's pr probably the most complete biblical exposition of most of the important passages that deal with the why behind fasting and what it is and some examples from the Old Testament. We also have another resource that uh, Janan, Pastor Carl's wife, created. It's called How to Join God, What God is Doing Through Prayer and Fasting. And this is pretty comprehensive. You have key scriptures, things to avoid, different kinds of fast, water only, broth juice, herbal tea fast, and then um, preparation, tips for physical preparation, emotional preparation, spiritual preparation, and also reasons for fasting. And I just wanted to read some for you. Reasons for fasting. For, res for restored relationship with God, returning to your first love. For purification from sin and to help others be purified as well. To know God more. To humble ourselves before God. For revival. To break crippling fears, anxieties, depression. For insight, for decision making, and for continual guidance. For health and physical healing for wholeness, for overcoming temptations, for overcoming wrong thinking, for obedience to God's word and simple trust in his ways, to seek God's direction, to prepare us for the coming king. And the list goes on and on. You can access this, like I said, on our church website. If you go to the blog section, it's called Fasting God's Way. But notice the way Jesus starts this section. He says, when you fast. He's not saying if you fast. So there's an implication that fasting is a regular spiritual discipline of a disciple. And this passage is not about convincing people to fast, but assuming that disciples fast. And Jesus talks about how to fast the right way. So if you've never fasted, it's never too late to start. And I strongly encourage you to get this resource. It's free. And to take baby steps. Again, a quick word of caution. Start small. I remember um, about 20 years ago, in fact, I was talking to this, to this young man uh, a few days ago. Um, this was a great time of revival in our church back in India. There was this bunch of young adults, and everyone wanted to fast. And this one guy, he goes, I've never fasted in my life, and I want to fast. He goes, I'm going to do a 21-day fast where I'm only drinking water and juice. And, okay. And then on day 14, he was so sick that he needed medical intention and he had to quit fasting. So you might want to start small. And also a big, a big thing for us to be worried about is not to fall into legalism. Jesus actually doesn't stipulate anything. He does not talk about duration. He does not talk about frequency. 
It just talks about the right attitude for fasting. And so we don't want to put yoke on ourselves, put more requirements than Jesus what than what Jesus wants for us. So that's one thing to be careful of. So why should we avoid flaunting our spirituality in practicing spiritual discipline, specifically fasting here before others? Let me read Matthew 6, 16 again. It says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. My first point for today is don't make it obvious with fasting because people's attention will be our only reward. The religious leaders went out of their way to let people know that they were fasting. And this might, and it might have served what they were trying to hit at. I'm sure people would have been impressed. People would have been admired. I know we do that. I, you know, we tend to idolize spiritual people. We want to pray like the way that person prays. We want to read the word like that the other person does. We want to memorize scriptures like that person. We want to emulate people who are spiritual than us. And these religious leaders would have sort of hit their objective of their fast which is to gain the admiration of people. But God says, well, that's the only reward that you get if you do that. These displays of righteousness are not godly or sincere. They're, they're to make others think well of us. It is an ungodly desire packaged in an outward cloak of godliness. Jesus calls them hypocrites. Even things that are seemingly noble and spiritual, sometimes we can weaponize it for eliciting human approval and admiration. I remember growing up, I was a pastor's kid, so I had no option but to be in church every Sunday. And I've literally listened to like thousands of sermons. And there's this interesting thing that happens in churches in India. I don't know if it happens here. Um, at least I've not seen it. But if you're in a small to mid-sized church in India and the pastor is preaching and he goes, turn with me to Matthew chapter 6, verse 16 to 18, I, I kid you not, just give three seconds, there'll be someone from the congregation reading that passage out aloud for you. What? Three seconds, that's all you need. Someone's already right there. They have no, well, they, they don't have a heads up. It's just that they're just so super fast that they can get to it there. And I remember as a 10-year-old, I loved that. You know, I used to do that. You know, we used to, used to almost like take turns reading passages that were quoted from the stage. We used to do that and, and it ended up becoming a competition. Well, who gets to the book of Micah? The minor prophets were the ones that were tricky. And so if you actually got that, man, you are really spiritual. <laughs> this happens to the day. I remember Katie, my wife, the first time she visited, she was sitting next to me and she goes, what's going on? Why are they... I'm like, no, this is what they do. And I used to do it myself. I had to tone, I, I had to tone down after a while because it just became really crazy. You know, it was, it was almost like, I got to get that, you know. And the whole point of the sermon was like, what's the next scripture he's quoting? It's not about the actual sermon, but what passage. 
is encoding. What do we do to make people think we are spiritual? Are we doing things that make us seem extra loving or kind or humble or generous in the eyes of people? Are we happy when people see us praying for others or listening or loving them well? Or are, are we happy when people notice how studious we are with God's word, how much we know God's word? Jesus says in this passage, avoid flaunting your spirituality before others because people's attention will be your only reward. And he goes on in verses 17 and 18, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Don't make it obvious when you're fasting because, here's my second and final point, because God's reward, because God rewards spiritual acts done in secret. Here, to anoint your head and wash your face when fasting is to keep up your ordinary routine, not something special or extra. That's what they did every day. So in other words, when you're fasting, just do your normal self-care routine. Don't go out in sweats. If you normally wear a button-up shirt, act the way you normally would so people can't tell that you're fasting. Go to work, dress nicely, smile at people, don't look sad, don't draw undue attention to yourself because it's not the external appearance that matters but the motivation behind it. Are we longing for God while we fast? Is it all about Him? And we have a God who sees you in secret and he rewards you for that. John Piper in his book, A Hunger for God, Desiring God Through Fasting and Prayer, this is what he says about this passage. He says, what Jesus is doing with these words in Matthew 6 is testing our hearts to see if God himself is our treasure. He is pressing fasting from the external to the radically internal and making it a sign of our true Godwardness. To Judaism, a fast was an outward sign of an inward condition. To Jesus, a fast was an inward sign of an inward condition. He is testing to see if the admiration of other people or even the spiritual effect on others of our piety has become the God supplanting food that entices our soul. How do we feel when nobody else knows what we're doing? How is it when no one is saying, how goes the fast? Are we content in God when no one but God knows that we have done what we ought to have done? We have an innate desire to be seen, noticed, and appreciated for what we do. But God is not saying that it's bad in itself because He sees us. Rather, what's wrong is us trying to satisfy or find satisfaction in earthly things and things that pass away. And three times in this passage, for both giving, praying, and fasting, Jesus says, well, the God who sees you in secret will reward you. Be encouraged that our 
efforts towards holiness, our good deeds, our acts of mercy and righteousness will not go seen, but God will reward you. So here's, if there's one thing that you take away today from my sermon, here's what it is. Here's my big idea statement. Don't show off your spirituality to get people's affirmation. Instead, keep your spiritual practices secret so you can be rewarded by God. Let's pray. God, we just thank you that you're a God who sees and you're a God who rewards. And God, we just ask you, God, to help us to put feet to this. We want to be your kingdom disciples. We want to make an impact in this world. We want to have an amazing relationship with you. And God, we just pray that you'd help us to just incorporate these spiritual disciplines, particularly fasting, so that we long for you, so that we desire for you, God, and you reward us for that. And God, you know that we're weak. You know that we seek attention, we seek approval, but we just pray that you would work in us, God, so that we, our orientation would be only towards you and you alone. We ask you to help us with this. We give you all glory, honor, and praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Great word, man. Great word. Yeah.